How do you know you're a grown-up? That's a funny question, I know. I still, though, ask myself sometimes. Turned 56 not long ago, but am I really a grown-up? You know, there are markers all along the way. At 16, you can drive. At 18, you can vote. At 21, you can drink. But being a grown-up, as we all know, isn't finally about reaching a certain age. We all know young people who are quite mature and old people who aren't. Most of us probably began to feel like grown-ups when we got our first job, moved out of the house, signed a lease. We finally understood what it, was, what it meant to not be a dependent anymore. Our parents were rejoicing. Getting married, having a baby are often kind of steps along the way to feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm all grown up. But plenty of people get married and have children who are not mature It's painful to see, but we've all seen it. Being a grown-up, it turns out, isn't automatic. You don't just get there because you reach a certain age or you do certain things. What marks being a grown-up, being mature? I think it's related to an experience I had in college. I think many people have an experience like this. It happens at at different points. I'd been away from home for a while. And my parents came for a visit, and I was just blown away by how wise they had become (laughs) since I'd left home. Later, I realized, oh, it's not they who had changed. I had changed. And that change was very much to do with my relationship to wisdom my ability to perceive it, my ability to accept it. This morning, we continue our series in 1 Corinthians, a a letter that Paul wrote to the, the Christians there in Corinth. He was writing to encourage them to unity rather than division. And in our passage this morning, he actually addresses this issue of wisdom. We all like to think of ourselves as mature. But how would you really know? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to begin our study this morning with verse 6. This is found on page 1012. 1012 in those black Bibles in the pews and chairs around you, if you're using one of those. I think you'll be helped if you pull out your Bible and, or open it up on your phone and, and keep it open, because I'm going to be referring to the text quite a bit as we work through this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, and we're going to be working all the way to chapter 3, verse 9. But I want to just start by reading the verses right before that, verses 4 and 5 in chapter 2, just to kind of set the context. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, I've said that Paul wrote this letter because he wants us to be uniters in Christ, not dividers. That's all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10. The Corinthians were dividing over their favorite preachers. And he's just, in the passage that we looked at last week, he just finished explaining, hey, look, our unity is in the message of the cross, not the messengers of the cross. 
That's why he says there in verse 4 and 5 that I just read, that's why I wasn't employing all the worldly wisdom of impressive Greek oratory that you all expected. I'm not, I wasn't trying to win fans. Instead, Paul is concerned about speaking God's wisdom. The question that we're going to see in our passage this morning is, are you guys mature enough to recognize it? Here's, here's his argument. Here's his point for them and for us. It's time to grow up and stop being babies. That's the argument. That's what I want to convince you of this morning, that it is time to grow up and stop being babies. Okay? I get it. That's kind of offensive. I'm, I'm, this is from Paul, not me. Okay? <laughs> I'm not the one suggesting maybe you're being babies. He is. Okay, I'm just, I'm just the messenger, remember? <laughs> this is the message, right? So I, I get it. It's kind of offensive. But I think it's kind of necessary, right? Because part of being childish is that you don't recognize that you are. The, the, the childish are exactly the people that don't know they're being childish. They often think they're being quite mature. It's everybody else around them that sees it. So, so we're going we're gonna, to like, deal with two questions this morning. Very simple outline. How do you know if you're spiritually mature? How do you know, secondly, how do you know if you're spiritually childish? And hopefully, as we answer those two questions, it will encourage us to grow up and stop being babies. All right. So first, how do you know if you're spiritually mature? That's point, that's point one. And we're going to pick it up in chapter two, verse six. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature. But not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it's foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it, since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right. In these verses, Paul gives us two characteristics of spiritual grown-ups. The spiritually mature listen to God's wisdom. You see that in verses 6 to 11. And they evaluate everything according to God's wisdom. You see that in verses 12 to 16. To put it a little more succinctly, the, the spiritually mature accept wisdom and they assess wisely. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit. 
The spiritually mature accept wisdom and they assess wisely because they have the Holy Spirit. Paul starts by explaining that even though his preaching didn't sound wise and impressive to to the Corinthians and according to the, the kind of Corinthian standards of Greek oratory, the message that he came preaching was, was actually a message of God's wisdom. You see that there in verses 6 and 7. In verse 7, he calls it a mystery, meaning something that had been hidden in the past, but is now revealed. He tells us that the wise, the powerful, the, the rulers of this age, they didn't get it. Otherwise, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. You see that there in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's kind of the, the proof that they didn't understand God's wisdom is that they went ahead with the crucifixion. Paul explains that from the beginning of the world, God had actually predestined the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our glory. You see that in verse 7. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. What's he talking about there? Well, remember, Paul has just finished saying that the Jews were scandalized by a weak and crucified Messiah. And the Greeks thought the whole thing was just absurd. You can see that back in chapter 1, verse 23. But to the contrary, Paul says, God in his perfect wisdom had planned the cross all along. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't him scrambling to to make up for, for mistakes along the way. No, it had been the plan all along. Before Israel failed to keep the covenant, before Adam and Eve rebelled, before the very first day of creation, God had planned to redeem a people for his glory and we're told here for their glory. And the revelation of that, the, the proof of that, the, the, the way we see that wisdom, Paul says, is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul quotes Isaiah 64 there in verse 9. We heard the passage that this verse comes from read earlier. The prophet asked God to once again show his people mercy, even though they didn't deserve it. And in quoting Isaiah 64, verse 4, here in verse 9 in our passage, Paul makes clear that the prophet's prayer was answered in and through Jesus. Friend, do you want to have some proof that God loves you? Maybe you wonder that sometimes. Maybe you wonder, does God really love me? How would I know that God loves me? The the proof of God's love for you is not found in God making life turn out for you the way you want life to turn out. The the proof of God's love for you is is not even in him answering your your latest emergency prayer for help. Like you don't normally talk to God, but you found yourself in a whole lot of trouble. And so you kind of shot up this quick prayer, God, if you're there, help me. Yeah, his answer to that prayer is not the proof that he loves you. The proof of God's love for you is found in Christ living the life that you should have lived, but have not. And then dying the death that you deserve to die, but cannot bear to die. 
and then getting up from the dead. So that as we're, we're told here in, in verse 9, all those who love him might enjoy forever all of the benefits that his life, death, and resurrection have procured. Forgiveness of sins, peace with God, eternal life, unending joy. The very glory that Jesus knows now in heaven at God's right hand is the glory that awaits us if we will repent of our sins and love him, putting our faith in him. Now, I know that sounds crazy. I know that that sounds maybe even foolish to you. What we're, we're told in these verses, human wisdom cannot comprehend it. And, and in part, that's because it doesn't make sense the way everything else in our world makes sense. But that's the thing about God's gracious love for us in Jesus Christ. It doesn't operate the way the world operates. You know how the world operates, right? You got to give to get. You, you, you've got to try harder and be better than everybody else if you're going to get the rewards that you're after. The, the, the way the, the world works is tit for tat. That's, that's the way it works. That's not the way God works. It doesn't make sense. But this is why it's called grace. It's, it's a gift from God. Not something you can earn. Not something <clears throat> that you can make yourself worthy of. But something that you can only receive. To accept God's wisdom in the cross, you need God's spirit to open your eyes, to, to, to reveal it to you, to convince you of it so that you will accept it. That's, that's really the point that Paul is making there in verses 10 and 11. As, as, as one guy I read this week said, the wisdom of the gospel isn't discovered by us. It's revealed to us. If you don't yet see God's wisdom in the cross of Jesus Christ, God's wisdom for you, his love for you, you're never going to figure it out on your own. You need God to reveal it to you. And, and, and so, friend, the first step is not to, like, clean up your life. The, the, the first step is, is not to, like, go study some more. The first step is to ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask God to open your eyes. If he is there, and he is, that is a prayer that he will answer. I would love to talk to you more about this. Uh, the, the rest of this sermon is mainly aimed at people who've already seen the truth of the gospel. But, but the most important thing in my life today would be to talk to you about what it would look like to ask God to open your eyes, to see if he's really there, and to see if his wisdom is in fact displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. You can, you can find me down front afterwards. You can talk to somebody that you came with. Don't walk away without grappling with your need for God to show himself to you. The spiritually mature accept God's wisdom. 
as it's revealed in the cross. And they accept it because it's the spirit that gives it to them. Now, Christian, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian. I'm talking about you. When I'm talking about the spiritually mature, I'm talking about you. Paul is not creating a special class of Christians here. This this accepting of God's wisdom because the Spirit gives it to us, this is true of of all Christians. Maturity is not something that's available only to a few, like to the people that are really into religion or or really into their Christianity. No, No, maturity is something that, in fact, is available to all and should characterize all of us as believers because if we're believers, we have the Spirit, To be a Christian is to have the Spirit who revealed these things to us. Verse 10. Now, the only question is, like my dad used to say to me, yeah, you think you're you're so mature. Are you acting like it? Right? The, the, The question is not, do you have a veil? The question is not, is this kind of maturity available to you? The question is simply, are you acting like it? Do you, do you live according to this wisdom that you've been given? We're going to come back to this later. So just hold that thought. The mature not only accept God's wisdom, they also assess everything by that wisdom. That's the second mark of being spiritually mature, that you assess everything by that wisdom because the Spirit of God is at work in you. This is Paul's point in verses 12 to 16. He says there in verse 12, Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. I I, want to be really clear here. If you have the Spirit, if the Spirit has revealed these things to you, it's not to like puff you up, it's not to make you proud, like you're better than anybody else. No, it's to actually give you the ability to understand what God is doing in the world and what God is doing in your life through Jesus Christ and the message of the cross. Which means we we need to understand a little bit about the Spirit. I know Neil talked about this some uh, in his series going through Romans chapter 8. But just to remind you, the Holy Spirit is not a cosmic force. The Holy Spirit is not a, like an, an influence that makes human beings spiritual. No, as Paul talks about the Spirit of God here, the Holy Spirit is personal, a, a person, the third person of the triune Godhead, as we sang about in the song right before uh, the, the pastoral prayer. If he weren't a person... How would he know God's thoughts? If he were merely a force or an influence, how would he be able to teach us God's very thoughts? Paul uses this analogy in verses 10 and 11 to explain that even as we know our own minds, and, and, and only like a person can explain what's going on in their own mind, right? Even as we know our own minds, it's the spirit that knows the mind of God. Now we learn, beginning in verse 12, why that matters. The Spirit of God teaches the unbeliever, I mean, teaches the believer to understand the truths of the gospel. Now, what, what does that mean? Paul, Paul's not saying that, like, the Holy Spirit teaches you to read. No, like, I don't know, you're 
first grade teacher taught you to read. So it, it's not that the Spirit actually teaches us the words. Not Non-Christians can grasp the words. Now, what he means is that the Spirit teaches us to accept the significance of those words, the meaningfulness of those words, and their force upon our lives. And Paul goes on to say uh, there in, in verse 13 that, that kind of the main way that happened for the Corinthians is by giving Paul spirit-taught words that he used then to explain spiritual things, spiritual realities to spiritual people. Verse 13, we also speak these things. What are these things? These things of the gospel, this, this mystery that's now been revealed in Jesus Christ. We speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Christian, the, the doctrine of Scripture, according to the Scriptures, is that these words... These words of Paul's that got written down, these words are God's words revealed by the Spirit of God for our instruction. These words are not like what your college professor told you, sort of just the record of someone else's interesting religious experience. They are not merely inspiring teaching. They are not profound ethics. Now, the scriptures are the verbal revelation of the thoughts of God. That's how Paul describes these words. And, and therefore, Christian, we don't, at the end of the day, simply read and evaluate the scriptures. The scriptures read and evaluate us. The spiritually mature are those who understand this and submit to God's word. Because we understand that these are the very thoughts of God. And those thoughts have a claim on us. That those thoughts win the battle when they're contrary to our thoughts. Because they are God's thoughts. Now, here's the thing. Christians submit to God's word. Non-Christians don't. In fact, Paul says in verse 14, non-Christians are unable to understand it. Again, he's not talking about the words themselves. Non-Christians can read. It's that they're unable to understand the significance, the weight, the binding character and nature of these words. So Christian, this is why evangelism must necessarily, in the end, be a supernatural activity that we're part of. I can't convince anyone to become a Christian. I can't speak clearly enough or persuasively enough to cause someone who is spiritually dead to become spiritually alive. I cannot do that, and neither can you. So, so yes, learn how to articulate the gospel. Because life comes through the preaching of this message. But don't just learn how to explain the gospel. Pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would attend your explanation of the gospel. Because unless the Holy Spirit attends those words, nothing happens. Our, our evangelism, yes, 
should, should involve some training. We should get better at being able to explain the truth of the gospel. Uh, we should learn how to answer common objections or at least a reasonable response to them. But we should never fool ourselves into thinking that if I were just better at this, more people would become Christians. It's not the way it works. Conversion is fundamentally God's work before it's our work. But that should also encourage us in our evangelism, right? We, we should be praying and then getting out there and like sharing the gospel. Because at the end of the day, it's not finally up to you. It's not up to how good you were at it. No, it is up to the Lord. We must open blind eyes, soften hard hearts, and convince people of what they were unable to understand before. So pray in your evangelism. And then get used to the fact that we will never make sense to our non-Christian friends. They might like us. They might tolerate us. But we will never finally make sense to them. The things that motivate us as Christians, the values that guide us, we're told there in, in, in verse, verse 14, those, those things are, are foolishness to the world. I think this is the danger of kind of attractional models of church, right? Because in our wisdom, what are we going to use to attract people into this building? Comfortable seating, entertaining messages, good childcare, maybe being about social causes that the world cares about. You know, all of those are fine things, perfectly fine things. But no matter how many things that we do with our life together that make us attractive to the world in its wisdom, none of that changes the fact that Jesus Christ and him crucified remain foolish to the world. And so when we begin to think that we can attract people to ourselves using the things of this world, oh, but Jesus kind of remains foolish. What's the danger? We start minimizing Jesus. We start downplaying the offense of the cross and the cost of discipleship, of, of repenting and leaving your, your old way of life and following Christ instead. We begin to downplay all of that because that gets in the way. We begin to think that we're doing it right just because the room is full. But, but friends, it's easy to fill a room up. If the music is good enough, if the message is entertaining enough, if the coffee is tasty enough and the seats are comfortable enough, there are plenty of people who will engage in religious entertainment. That's not what we are about. And we want to be on guard against ever thinking that if we were just more accessible, more attractive, the world would come to Christ. No. The world finds Christ foolish. And so we pray and we faithfully proclaim a foolish message because it is that message that the Holy Spirit has revealed and it is that message that the Holy Spirit uses to make the dead alive. Now, one, one last comment on what it looks like to be mature, even though we don't make sense to the world, Paul says that we can make sense of everything 
by the wisdom that we've received from the Spirit. You, you see that there in verse 15. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. When Paul says that, he doesn't mean that we, because we have the Spirit, can supernaturally determine whether the latest vaccine is effective. It doesn't mean that we can evaluate everything. So, so like supernaturally, Christians can just know, like, what's the best policy for addressing homelessness? Paul is not saying that we're geniuses. No, what he's arguing, and you see this in the context, he's arguing that because we have the Spirit, because we're instructed by the Spirit, we can rightly assess spiritual reality. At the same time, we know, he says, that we're not evaluated by anyone. Again, he's not saying that Christians are beyond criticism. He's saying that finally we are not judged by the world's wisdom. We're not judged by the world's standards. Rather, we assess the world around us and we assess ourselves according to the wisdom that has been given to us by the Spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in His Word. Since that wisdom is the wisdom of God, the spiritually mature are those who think about everything according to the mind of Christ Himself. That's his point there in verse 16 and kind of where he lands all of it. Because we have the Spirit, and because the Spirit knows the mind of God, we have the mind of Christ. Now, what that meant for the Corinthians was that if they, if they were really mature spiritually, they wouldn't be thinking about their favorite preachers the way they were. They, they wouldn't be dividing up over various preachers and kind of giving into worldly factionalism. What does that mean for us here at Henson? Well, at the very least, it must mean that we are going to be committed to building our unity around the gospel. And according to the wisdom that God has revealed by his spirit in the scriptures, we are not here at Henson going to divide ourselves over issues where the scriptures give us liberty to disagree. What areas are those? They are too long to enumerate. Like most of life falls into the category of Christian liberty. We're not going to divide over those things. Nor, kind of in reverse, are we going to build our unity around one of those things that we can divide over. I, I mean, one of, one of the great criticisms of the evangelical church today is that it appears to be an arm of the Republican Party. I, I'm just here to tell you that it's not really, like, you can't go to chapter and verse and say, thou shalt not be a Democrat. Thou shalt be a Republican. It's just not there. It's complicated. It's messy. It's going to require a lot of wisdom and people are going to make all sorts of decisions. So we're just not going to do that. We're not going to build our unity around something that the scriptures allow us to disagree over. But we're also not going to build our unity in disobedience to something that the scriptures require us to agree on. This takes a lot of wisdom but I've got good news for you. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit. 
You have the resources you need to engage in this exercise of wisdom to, to figure this out and, and how this will work in our life together. The bottom line, God's word will be the rule of our corporate life. No more, no less. We're not going to make the mistake of fundamentalism and say, yeah, we know God's word says this, but we're going to add these 10 things to make sure that we obey what God's word says and build our unity around these extras. But we're, not, we're also not going to make the mistake of liberalism and say, you know, there are these things that God's word teaches, but people find that really hard. It's kind of offensive, so we're going to get rid of a few of those things so that we can maintain unity. No, we're not going to do that, that either. God's word, no more, no less, will be the rule of this church, this community, and we will build our unity there. I think, therefore, that means we're not going to define ourselves or each other according to worldly wisdom and worldly categories. You know what those categories are. They're political categories. They're, they're ethnic categories. They're social categories, class categories. We're not going to do that. Even though all those things are real, we, we don't define ourselves by those things. Instead, we're going to evaluate all of those things according to the upside-down values of the kingdom of God as it's displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you, are we, spiritual grown-ups? Are we mature in, in, in our acceptance of the wisdom of God in the gospel? And are we mature in our ability to assess our world according to that wisdom? The mature, you see, are believers who not only have the Spirit of God, but who live like it, who listen to that spirit as he speaks to us through his word. Well, that's what the spiritually mature look like, according to Paul. But sometimes it's easier to evaluate if you're a grown up by way of contrast. So let's look at the opposite of that kind of second. How do you know if you're spiritually childish? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. All right, at this point, Paul draws a really sharp and frankly offensive contrast between the spiritual people that he was describing as mature and the Corinthians. <laughs> like, 
What isn't mature? The Corinthians. They're, they're, they're childish, he says. Far from being spiritual, they're, they're like the opposite of spiritual. He had to talk to them as if they were fleshly. Far from being mature, they're, they're, they're babies, eating baby food. Now, it's, it's hard to know what he's referring to there in verse 2. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. It could be that he's referring to like basic teaching rather than more advanced doctrinal teaching. You, you get that idea in the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews talks about that kind of distinction. But given our context, given that what Paul's just said about God's hidden wisdom in the cross, I think it's unlikely that he's calling the mystery of Christ mere milk. I, I think what he seems to be saying is that the way you received my teaching was as if it was baby food, not solid food. And, and kind of the way I'm having to speak to you even now is as if you're, you're babies, not, not mature. I, I, I actually think he's, he's using, he's, he's very clever here, because in that earlier section, you know, he, he talks about the secret wisdom that we know. I mean, I think he's appealing to their childishness there. He's, he's literally using their childishness against them because what child doesn't want to know a secret, right? Anyway, rather than digesting Paul's teaching about the cross as solid food, which would lead to maturity, they're, they're treating it all, they're digesting it as if it's just milk. Now, I want to be really clear here. Paul is not saying that they're not Christians. He calls them fleshly. He calls them worldly. Now, that sounds like a non-Christian, but, but he, he, he pulls himself back, right? He says that, that I, I had to speak to you as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. Now, again, I don't think Paul is creating another category of Christian, so, something that I grew up with called, called the carnal Christian, someone who is a believer, but in no way ever in his whole life lives like a believer, I don't think Paul is describing this as a stable place to be. He's not creating a category that you can just hang out in. No, he's saying, guys, you're being immature. Grow up already. That's what he's saying. But of course, first he has to convince them that they're not as mature as they think. So he offers the evidence of their spiritual childishness. And there are two things that he points to. First, like all children, they squabble. They squabble. And second, like all children, they really misunderstand what's going on around them. So first he points to their squabbling there in verses 3 and 4. Like, like, like children arguing over whose dad is the strongest. Or like, like, like which superhero team is the most powerful. And of course, I'm associated with that superhero team, but you guys are on this loser superhero team because they're less powerful. Just, just like that, he says, these guys are squabbling, dividing and fighting over their favorite preachers. Now, let's be clear. The problem isn't that they have favorite preachers. It's okay to have a favorite preacher. The problem is that they're turning those differences of opinion into power plays for superiority. Like, I'm better than you because I'm with this guy. You're lower than me because you're with that guy. Paul says there's, there's envy and strife among them. Verse three. Now, this is not the envy of wanting something like an object or something that, that someone else has. I mean, we all think of children who are happily playing, but as soon as a, a new toy is introduced, a, a kid has a toy that nobody else has, 
none of them are happy anymore, right? That envy of wanting what somebody else has. It's not so much that. It's more the envy, the, the, the jealousy over the status that other people have. And that, that envy or jealousy over status is, is, is leading to strife, discord. It's, it's leading to rivalry. Paul says that's childish, worldly. He calls it mere human ways of behaving at the end of verse three. And again, at the end of verse four. So Christian, just let, let me ask you, where are you tempted to think and behave this way, this kind of envious and rivalrous way toward other believers in our own church? Where does this temptation hit you? Is it, is it toward people that seem to be included in circles that you feel excluded from? Is it, is it that some in this church have, have ministries or recognition or opportunities and access that, that you long for, but feel like you don't have? Maybe it's more worldly categories like the ones I mentioned earlier. Categories like class or ethnicity, culture or politics. Maybe, maybe those categories have crept into your thinking and stoke your resentment or your sense of rivalry. Whatever it is, wherever this temptation hits you, and I think it hits all of us. Paul says that that way of thinking and the envy that it promotes is not at all characteristic of the wisdom of the spirit. Instead, it's, it's worldly wisdom. It's, it's a fleshly way of thinking that Christ actually saved you from, not to. Here's the thing. Even if that sense of envy or rivalry, that, that, that squabbling over pride of place or recognition even if it never breaks out into the open in anything you ever say or do, but only happens in your mind. Friend, even then you're being childish. You're being spiritually childish. Children squabble, but they don't just squabble. Paul points that the spiritually childish also misunderstand. They, they kind of have a wrong assessment of what's going on around them, of reality. Paul asks in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? The, the answer is nothing, right? That's, that's the answer that he expects them to give, but that's not the answer they're thinking. You know, you're, they're thinking of Paul and Apollos as these like rival leaders by which being on this team or that team, you get to claim superiority for yourself. But Paul's saying, no, people, you've totally misunderstood Paul and Apollos are not at odds with each other. He says, look, we're just, we're just servants through whom you believed. And I was given one task and Apollos was given another task there in verse five. He, he uses an analogy from farming, right? He says, look, one plants the seed. I planted. Another one comes along and waters. Apollos watered. But it's not like we're doing different things. In, in verse eight, he makes the point, look, we are one. He who plants and he who waters are one. That, that means like we're, we're united. We're actually about the same thing. We're on the same page. We're working toward the same goal. And then besides, it's not like we're anything anyway. 
Planting a seed doesn't make it grow. Watering a seed doesn't make it grow. We're not anything. He says, it's God who makes the growth. It's God who's responsible for you, who you are, what's going on in your midst. He develops the analogy that the field does not belong to the one who planted the seed or the one who watered it. The field, that is the the local church, the Corinthian church or, or our local church, the field belongs to God. To to change the image once more, if he and Apollos are builders, then the local church is the building and God owns the building. So basically he says to him, look, 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 stop saying you belong to Apollos. Stop saying you belong to Paul. If you were writing it today, he would say, stop saying you belong to Dever or MacArthur or Piper or Trump or Biden. Stop it. You've completely misunderstood what we were about. You belong to God. If you're a believer, Paul says, we're just, we're just co-workers who also happen to belong to God. You see that for most of you, it will be in a footnote uh, uh, in, there in verse nine, co-workers belonging to God. He's not exalting himself to God's level. He's saying, look, you all belong to God and me and Paul, we're just co-workers and we belong to God too. And all we've been doing is the work that he gave us to do. Now, isn't that like children to misunderstand what was going on? To misevaluate the situation. I can remember being in uh, grade school and kind of being jealous for the superiority of my favorite teacher over my less favorite teachers. I'm sure, I'm sure Mike DeBoer saw that sometimes in, in the school system. Kids, kids get their favorites and they, they kind of imagine teams between their favorites. I can remember doing that. What's more embarrassing is that I think stayed with me for a long time. That kind of partisan team spirit. Even in seminary, the students would organize themselves around different professors, kind of have fan clubs around their favorite professors. I remember vividly standing in a large room at seminary. This is years ago. And listening to a discussion between two really, really prominent, significant professors at my school, Dr. Haithman and Dr. Klein. And they were talking about a a point of theology that they disagreed about, and they disagreed about it strongly. And I remember watching as the students in the room began to physically sort themselves and stand behind their man right? Stand behind their favorite professor and who they associated themselves with. And the whole, the, 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 the tension in the room began to rise because this like party spirit thing, like this competition thing began to develop. Here's the thing, Haifman and Klein, they're both on the same faculty. They both believe the same gospel. They're working on the same team, trying to prepare pastors. They disagreed, but they weren't enemies in their disagreement. But the students, we kind of made, we kind of wanted them to be. And of course, we all wanted to be on the winning team because it made us better. It really, the whole, the whole scene, as I look back on it, 
it revealed that we didn't understand who we were. We didn't belong to Haifman or to Klein. We belonged to Christ. We weren't preparing to preach Haifman's gospel or Klein's gospel. We were preparing to preach Christ's gospel. But our sense of rivalry had blinded us. Where does this happen for you? Brothers and sisters, when, when we get so upset with another member of this church because they hold uh, some position on a debatable matter that you disagree with, are you not acting like mere humans? When you become so defined by, by an, an issue or some person out there, that it is difficult for you to recognize that those on the other side of that issue or who identify with some other person out there are part of the same field, part of the same building here in this local church? Are you not acting childish? When you begin to define yourself, when you begin to think of yourself first as belonging to a position or a group, rather than belonging to God? Are you not thinking with the mind of the flesh rather than the mind of Christ? So which are you? A spiritual grown-up or spiritual child? The spiritually mature accept the upside-down wisdom of the cross and they assess everything in the light of the cross. The spiritually childish, well, they think like the world thinks, seeking their own advantage, misunderstanding who they are. Paul wants us to grow up and stop being babies. But how? Well, I think in part, it means accepting the counsel that he's going to give in the rest of the letter. Part of what he's doing here in drawing this contrast is shaming them a little bit to get them to wake up to their true condition so that they'll listen to the rest of what he has to say. That's true for us too. But I think it starts already actually where Paul started. When God regenerates us, he gives us his spirit. That's all Christians, not just some. He gives us his spirit, and so he gives us the mind of Christ. But here's the thing. When we are given the mind of Christ, it's not like our mind is replaced. We don't like lose one mind and get another mind. No, having the mind of Christ means that our minds are now enlightened. I mean, think back to, Paul, to Neil's series in Romans chapter 8, right? Because we have the Spirit, we are no longer trapped in the darkness, the foolishness of our old way of thinking. It's like the Spirit has come in and thrown open the windows of our mind. So that now the light of God, the light of the Spirit streams in. The question is, are you willing to see things according to that light? Are you willing to look out the windows? and evaluate according to the light that is now streaming in by the Spirit? Will we think about ourselves and each other, our church and the world according to the mind of Christ? Or will we continue to simply think in merely 
human ways, with the mind of the flesh? That's, that's the question in front of us. It's also the how we begin to grow up. Because we have the Spirit, our relationship to wisdom has changed. We know what God thinks. He's told it to us in the scriptures. He's testified to it in our hearts. The spiritually mature listen to what the spirit has to say. Let's do that. Let's be characterized by listening to the wisdom of God revealed by the spirit in the word of God. Let's submit to his mind rather than the world's mind, which is always pressing in on us. Let's together grow up into Christ, our head. Church, let's stand united in spiritual wisdom and put childishness behind us. And by God's grace, I'm sure we will. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and just think of those ways that you're tempted to think in worldly and fleshly ways rather than to think according to the mind of Christ and just confess that to the Lord, asking him to give you his wisdom. Heavenly Father, we confess that in our childishness and immaturity, even though through your spirit, you've given us the mind of Christ, we so often go back to old and foolish ways of thinking. We, we, we allow what makes sense to the world to be the thing that drives us. Lord, we pray that we would not be childish that we as a congregation and we individually would be mature in Christ, that, that you would give us ears to hear the spirit, that we would listen to him and that we would submit ourselves to his values, his words, and not the world's. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.